Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Man, I'm so glad you made it here this afternoon, almost. Uh, you guys excited to be here? Man, I love you guys. Second service, you guys are amazing. Hey, turn to your neighbor and say, man, you just look really good. Might be kind of an awkward conversation. Turn to your second choice and say that, man, I just don't like the Philadelphia Eagles. No. Uh, Do we have Eagle fans here? Okay. How many bandwagon Eagle fans do we have here? Come on. Hey, actually, I hear Jesus is doing something powerful in that team. Can I get an amen? So, man, I kind of like them, even though they're like our arch nemesis. And all the Cowboy fans said amen to that. Well, we got five of them here this morning. Hey, man, I hope, I hope you've come prepared to uh, hear from, from God this morning. Uh, before I just share just a, a few thoughts, we're entering into a new sermon series. I want to thank Pastor Ken for speaking for me last week. And uh, he talked about, if you remember, the four aspects of risk. And uh, it was powerful. I heard from many of you that um, you want him to come back and preach. The devil is, the devil is, devil, no, I won't say that. Uh, (laughs) He's the best preacher. Can I get an amen to that? He's, come on. We've learned everything from Pastor Ken, and uh, he is the founding pastor of this church. And then two weeks ago, we had uh, my sister Tracy. Uh, She spoke and also on risk. Can you get it up for Trace? She is a book writer. She has her MDiv, and uh, she's changing the world. And then before that, we had my beautiful wife, Kelly Wild, the greatest communicator in the world. And she spoke three weeks ago on unity. And uh, contrary to popular belief, I wasn't just um, phoning it in. Uh, we, and I want to thank you for your prayers over the last uh, few weeks uh, we've been struggling with sickness. Anybody been struggling with sickness in their family? Okay. Uh, we'll be praying for you at the end of this service. Uh, God heals today. Can I get an amen? So my wife had a, had a virus, turned into laryngitis, then turned into pneumonia. It's just crazy. Uh, but, but God brought us through that. So uh, I want to thank you for your prayers. If I sound a little nasally, I'm getting through it, okay? Don't judge me this morning. Can I get an Amen. Um, so I, we, we decided this Sunday to start our Ruth series. I've actually never taken um, our, our church through the book of Ruth before. It's going to be a mini-series. Some of you are like, oh, God, do we have another 18-week series? No, it's going to be about four weeks. And uh, I, I just want to give you some of the themes out of the book of Ruth. And, uh, man, this message today is all about standing out. And I want to talk about standing out and what that means. Uh, Jesus redefines what standing out uh, means. And so we'll go straight to Ruth chapter 1, and we're just going to read a few verses. We'll begin in verse 1. The author of, uh, of Ruth writes, In the days when the judges, everyone say judges. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So this book, the book of Ruth, is set within a time period of anarchy and uh, absolute corruption. Uh, We have, if if you've read through the book of Judges, 
The book of Judges is, is about how the people of God spiral into this dehumanized condition. So violence compounds on itself. And so you have judges who are supposed to rescue God's people. God's people are unfaithful, but these judges colluded with corruption. And uh, the, one of the last stories of the book of Ruth is graphic. It's, it's rated R. I can't even mention it because there's some young people here. It's just, it's crazy. What happens when you're unfaithful? It leads to uh, dehumanized acts. So the book of Ruth is, it follows uh, the book of Judges, and it's set within this time period, and it's a refreshing book. Can I get an amen? Uh, we have some characters. Next week, I'm going to talk about Boaz, and I'm going to flesh out this kind of kinsman redeemer motif that a lot of people are confused about, and I'll, tr I'll try my best to make that clear next week. It's going to be really good. Uh, but we have these characters uh, that stand out, not for their corruption, but for their faithfulness. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about, okay, what, what that looks like. And so uh, the author, uh, he continues, so the judges have ruled. There was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem. Everyone say Bethlehem. Uh, so Bethlehem in the Hebrew literally means house of bread. So the house of bread in Judah, uh, they went to this particular no-name man at this point, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Moab is like, um, I'm trying to think, it's like Mardi Gras combined with the Philadelphia Eagles, like celebration party with ner Nero's like lurid um, it festivals, whatever. It just, Moab, uh, if you don't know, they were descendants of Lot, and uh, they were known in the ancient world as, as an archetype of sexual disorder. And so um, uh, he takes his family. Uh, the storyteller is implicitly saying that this is an act of disobedience. Uh, because of the threat of famine, he leaves the place of provision, the place of bread, because he's playing it safe. And he goes to a place that God has not called him to go. We'll talk more about that next week. So he takes his wife and his two sons. And then we get to verse 2. Uh, the name of the man was Elimelech. Uh, Elimelech means king. That was his destiny, but he fails to live up to his destiny. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were, these are good, strong uh, Klingon names. All the Star Trek fans said amen. Malon and Kilion, right? Say that for me. Malon and Kilion, right? There's a dark um, poetic sound in the Hebrew. Uh, their names mean sickness and dying. That's great. Name your kids sickness and dying, right? The storyteller is trying to make the point. You leave the house of bread at Bethlehem and you go to Moab. You play it safe. You collude with death itself. As parents, this is a warning. And I'm going to talk more about this next week about our legacy. What we do right now will affect our kids. And not just our kids. Come on. It will affect our grandbabies. Not just our grandbabies, but our great grandbabies babies. And I'm thinking about legacy. I'm 41, almost 42. I know I look like I'm 28, right? Um, but I've been thinking about our, 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 my legacy, our legacy as followers of Jesus. I want to talk about this next week. When it comes to following Jesus, I don't want you to play it safe. I don't want to play it safe. I want to be faithful to Jesus. Can I get an amen? So they were, as, as the storyteller continues, uh, there were uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and settled there or remained there. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And, and the story continues. These took uh, Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. In verse 5, and both Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was left, Naomi, without her two sons and her husband. 
So now Naomi, because of the actions in this ancient setting, we have a thing called patriarchy. Patriarchy, patriarchy mostly was bad. It was run by one man. Uh, there, there could be good things that could come out of this. But the, the, the implication within the story is that Elimelech exercised absolute control. He's kind of like a, a nominal follower of God, and he made a decision to play it safe. And he ended up leaving his wife uh, in a forlorn situation. And so Naomi, uh, there was no women's suffrage back then. There was no Me Too movement. There was no um, equal pay. There was, she had no economic hope. Her husband and her two sons who would provide for her are no longer there. So in this ancient setting, she is reduced to a cipher. She's nothing. She has no hope. And so this story set within the time of Judges begins with trauma. And then we uh, come to verse 13. Naomi, in her bitterness, her self-confessed bitterness, she has a conversation with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And we're going to quickly, we're going to skip just a few verses. Verse 13, the story continues. And Naomi says, would you therefore, she's talking to her uh, two daughter-in-laws, wait till they were grown. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? She's essentially saying, I can't give you sons. I'm too old. You don't want to follow me. Uh, I'm thinking about going back to Bethlehem. There's bread there, uh, but you just don't want to come with me. No, my daughter, she says, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth, I love this, clung to her. Could you turn to your ear and say clung? But Ruth clung to her. This is an allusion to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Uh, the first time that we hear the word clung or cling or cleave is found in Genesis 2. And it's the framework is a marriage ceremony where God brings Adam and Eve and he marries them. And the text reads, the man shall leave what? His mom and his dad, right? His papa and his mama. And uh, he shall cleave or cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh or they shall become a brand new family. So this word clung is powerful. It evokes faithful covenant love. It, it evokes loyalty. And so Ruth is embodying uh, the faithfulness of God to Naomi. And we'll talk more about that over the next few weeks. Verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law and verse 16, but Ruth said, we have been saying this for centuries, every couple has it in their wedding. It's dazzling in its poetic beauty. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go. I will go. Come rain, sunshine, hell, or high water. That's my paraphrase. I will go with you and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And then in verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's powerful. She's saying this to her mother-in-law, who's a self-confessed bitter person. And she's saying, I'm going to stick with you. Like, you don't like me right now. You don't want me to follow you, but I'm going to follow you all the way back to Bethlehem. In verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Then we come to verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Again, the house of bread and provision. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? 
And then the story continues. She said to them, this is um, cast as a public lament, the small town village. She says, do not call me Naomi, which means in the Hebrew pleasant. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and I've, honestly, I felt, I'm going to pray for some of you. I don't know when I'm going to do it, but I'm going to, maybe in the, halfway through my message, we'll just go where the Holy Spirit leads, maybe the end of this uh, sermon, but I feel like there's some of you, this is like your narrative in your head, and she says this, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Some of you think your best years are behind you. Some of you, 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 you think back to your 20s, and you were like filled with potential, and uh, you had so much going for you, and now you're in a season, maybe a long season, where you can relate to these words. You feel empty. You feel nothing. You feel meaningless. You have no hope. You feel like your best days are not in front of you. They're behind you. And uh, I just want to say, if that is you, uh, and this is going to sound cliche, but God uh, can take any season, and he can produce good out of it. Can I get an amen? And I'm going to sound like a Pentecostal preacher right now. But yes, yes, some of you got way too excited about that. <laughs> your best days, I don't care if you're 72, your best days, if you're in Jesus, are in front of you. Well, Chris, you don't know my situation. I'm going Pentecostal, right? I don't have to know your situation. Come on. God can produce good out of any situation. I was going to go, I was going to go, guys. Uh, with a, I was going to just give you a bunch of cliches, but I decided not to. All right, let's just move on. So why call me? And I'm going to pray for you at the end of the service if that was you. But why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And then verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem. The narrative reverses here. It turns. We have tragedy compounding on tragedy. And then we get to the end of verse 22 before we get into chapter 2. And I love this little narrative clue. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The book of Ruth, if you don't know, is all about how God works in our life in hidden ways to bring his purpose about in our lives. And we're going to be talking about that. Amen. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for the 25 minutes and 52 seconds that I have to share your word. Lord, I, I thank you for your grace. Lord, just bless everyone in this room. Lord, we thank you that you're in charge. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I thank you that you would fill our hearts with faith today and that we would leave with um, expectancy. Lord, that we would leave this place, our hearts filled with fresh hope, fresh strength, and renewed energy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Hey, um, I'm in that season. How many parents do we have here this morning? Okay, afternoon. Uh, so a lot of parents, you probably can relate to this. Uh, the last probably five weeks, uh, my boys have been playing basketball. And uh, they, I don't know what it is, something really kicked in. And they're just really, really competitive. So pretty much every day, it feels like I have to break up fights. Parents, you've been there before. So I'm breaking up fights. And a lot of it is because 
my boys in particular, I love it. They just want to be first in everything. Parents, can you relate to that? Uh, they want to be first to the car door. Uh, they want to be first uh, to the, um, the seats. They want to be the first person to eat their food. They want to be the first person in line. It's weird. They don't want to be the first to wake up. We're still working on that, right? Um, but everything's about, it's, it's all about winning, it's all about being first. It's all about standing out. Uh, and I love it because my boys are really competitive. So over the last five weeks, I've been practicing uh, or coaching my boys and uh, just kind of working with them with some of their mechanics and stuff. And I'm trying to, God's teaching me. Parents, how many of you know this? When you're trying to teach your kids, God's trying to teach you something. And God just, he's just, he's making it very clear that I need to work on some patience, Right. And so um, I'm, I'm working with my boys on, you know, paying attention and working with their shot and with their crossover and stuff like that. And the end of every practice, what I do, I, I want them to get a feel of how to play basketball. I want them to go one-on-one, which was a bad idea. But I still did it for about five weeks. Um, what, what, what has happened, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty ah, comical, a little bit tragic. But my, I realize my boys are savage when they're competing against each other. Uh, Wesley twice got a bloody nose, twice Quincy punched uh, Wesley. Both of them cried because they both lost. And I remember sitting there, my heart went out for them, but I also just wanted to see how this was going to play out with my boys, right? (laughs) Blood, I'm, I'm not joking. I got blood on me. Blood on my son, blood on the court. I mean, there's probably blood still in our, our, our gym, um, but we cleaned it. Can I get an amen? We're, uh, we're clean people here. And uh, so I remember just this, this intense competitiveness and, again, just this kind of fighting and they want to win. And uh, uh, they're just kind of every now and then kind of hitting each other. And I remember at, at first I wanted, to, I, I, I wanted to just stop it, Okay. We're not going to talk about standing out because that's what they want, right? They want to stand out. They want to be first. They want to be better than, than each other. And I, at first, I just wanted to, like, say, no, none of that talk. We're just going to love each other. You're going to stop being selfish, which, of course, they need to love each other. And, of course, I don't want them to be selfish. But I, I remember thinking, it's funny, the Holy Spirit began to speak to me. And this is, I feel like, a word for us as a community. But it's also tied into Ruth because Ruth stands out. And I want to talk about this theme of standing out. But the Holy Spirit began to speak to me out of Mark chapter 9. And uh, it's kind of a similar story. I love it. Jesus is on the road to Capernaum. He has his suburban and he has his 12 little kids in the back, right? And James and John are fighting. And what are they fighting over? Who's the greatest, right? And so James, he's like, he's frustrated. Peter has his, ear, his hands in his ears, and he's rocking back and forth. And, and they're saying, stop it. And they're being trivial about everything, about over who's the greatest. So Jesus slams on the brakes in his suburban, and he turns around. And he goes, hey, hey, little homies, what are you guys talking about? Isn't it funny? Have you ever done this before? Like you stopped. Your kids are like, they're like little rabid honey badgers in the back. And they won't listen to you, and you literally want to, you just, you can't control it. You're just full of anger, right? Um, I think Jesus, he just stops, kind of does the same thing. He turns around and says, guys, guys, what are you talking about? And it's silent. I love it. They're like, um, Jesus, I, I don't know. Jesus obviously is aware of what they're talking about. It's interesting. Jesus, he turns around, and he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, hey, hey, hey. I don't want you to to use that language of being the best. He doesn't say that. 
He doesn't say, I want you to stop using the language of being the greatest. Usually when we come to church and we talk about humility, we usually think that God wants to crush us, pulverize us, make us a worm. Like somehow God doesn't want us to stand out. Like as if this desire, this built-in desire that God has put in every one of us to be important, to be recognized, to do something, that's a holy thing. And so Jesus doesn't say, I want you to shut your mouths and stop talking about who's the greatest or who's the best. No, this is what Jesus says. He just reorders their priorities. He gives them a renewed vision of what it means to be the best, to stand out, to be the greatest. It's not about status. It's not about achievement. It's not about power. It's not about fame. Jesus says, hey, guys, if you want to be the greatest, that's a good thing. If you want to be the best, woo, that's a good thing. If you want to be significant, if you want to be recognized, I'm ripping off MLK, one of his last sermons ever that he preached. He goes, hey, if you want to be, if you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. If you want to be significant, wonderful. It's great to want to be great. It's okay to be first. But what Jesus says, if you want to be first, if you want to be the greatest, if you want to stand out, you need to stand out in loving people. You need to stand out in serving. You need to stand out when it comes to generosity. And I think this is related to Ruth because we have Ruth who, who stands out in this story. She's, she's unremarkable according to our standards. She doesn't have um, fame. She doesn't have a Twitter account with 3.5 million followers. She doesn't have money. She doesn't have education. She didn't build a global brand. She's not a Rhodes Scholar. They didn't have braces back then, but she didn't have braces. Might have had crooked teeth. I don't know. She didn't have a personal trainer. She didn't go to design school. She, in this ancient setting, had absolutely nothing. According to our standards, she's unremarkable. But according to God's standards, she does something remarkable. What does she do? What does she do? Does she change the world? No, she changes one person's life. A woman, self-confessed mother-in-law, who claims, I would never say this about any person, but she says over her own life, I'm a bitter old woman. I, 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 I left full, but now I'm empty. I have no future. I'm worn out. I'm tired. I'm broken. I'm exhausted. And Ruth, Ruth knowing that she probably had no future if she was to follow um, Naomi, made a decision to love her, to serve her, to be faithful, to be generous. Ruth is in microcosm what I want our church to be. I want us to have the strength to embrace all the tired people, all the weary people, all the bitter people, I want us to love, Judah talked about this about three or four weeks ago when he was with us, but I want us to love people in the city. Can I get an amen? I'm gonna declare this over you. We are gonna be a people. We're gonna be first as a church, not in setting records with selling worship stuff, music, and we're gonna do that one day. Can I get an amen? We're gonna be the best, not just in our sermons, not just in um, our media production, not just in our branding, that's okay, but God's called us not to be first in those things. God's called us to be first in loving our city. 
And I'm declaring this over all of us. God's going to give you a new strength. How do you be great? How do you get recognized? How does your name live in perpetuity? It doesn't come through success. It doesn't come through status. It does not come through how many followers you have on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Man, if you want to be the greatest, love like Ruth. And so we're going to love people, and God's going to give you the strength to love people in the city and in the country. God's going to give you the strength to love Republicans. How many of you know Republicans need some love? And the Democrats. Can I get an amen? Republicans need some help, and Democrats need some help. Atheists need some help, and come on, Christians need some help. We're going to love vegans and meat lovers and Pittsburgh Steelers fans. It's going to be a tough one for me. And we're going to love cat people. Come on. And we're going to love dog people. We're going to love people that wear skinny jeans and baggy jeans. Come on. And people who still love 80s rock music. We will still love you. This is my vision for our church. I don't, I, I got to be honest with you. I don't care for preaching great messages anymore. I'm 41. I am past that. I don't care about having the best worship experience, and I want that. You know what I care for us as a community? I just want us to love people like Ruth. I want to be first in this city when it comes to embodying generosity and serving people and giving our lives and being faithful. I want to cling to this city. Can I get an amen? I want all those who are marginalized, all those who have no hope, all those, and this could, people, this, this could be people that have wealth or no money at all. This isn't just an economic issue. We're saying the poor and the wealthy, I want to I love them all through the grace of Jesus. And this is what separates Ruth. Ruth, she's not playing it safe. Elimelech, we'll talk about this next week, he played it safe. He went to Moab. Here we have Ruth does not play it safe. She risks everything. She could easily stay. And Naomi, in her own words, said, hey, how about you stay in your hometown with your family? Right? You, you can remarry. You can have kids. You can have the comfort of someone supporting you. Why, why do you want to come back with me, immigrate with me back to Bethlehem? In fact, even in Ruth's words, when she says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And we're all going to die. That's essentially what she's saying. She is the first immigrant, first immigrant that doesn't believe she has a better life. She, she expects not a better life as she travels with Naomi to Bethlehem. In fact, immigration in this ancient setting would have been a dangerous adventure, or not adventure, but a dangerous thing. She was a woman living in this time period. Two women traveling roughly 50 miles from Moab back to Bethlehem would have been a very dangerous thing. In fact, Boaz in chapter 2, we'll read this next week, warns all his men not to touch Ruth, evoking a, a, a kaleidoscopic picture of what it looked like to be a woman in this setting. Sex, sexual exploitation was rampant in this setting, and Ruth knew it. She was taking her life in her own hands as she followed her bitter mother-in-law back to Bethlehem. 
She doesn't play it safe. And can I just tell you today, God only blesses those who do not play it safe. Blessing, let me sharpen that up. Blessing is found when we learn to risk it all in obedience to follow God and his voice and commit ourselves to loving people. Come on, let's never underestimate what we can do by loving somebody. Loving just one person in this city can literally save the world. Your friendship with someone can rescue an entire generation. Can I get an amen to that? But I don't think we believe that. It's not sexy enough to love somebody. We got to get Instagram followers. We got to manufacture our status and our success. Middle class America is addicted not to God or Jesus. They're addicted to worldly wealth and technology. And there's nothing wrong with wealth. If you have money, that's great. God's blessed you with money. But the ultimate end of your life is not accumulating wealth and houses and stuff so people can say that you're important. The ultimate end of our lives as humans is to glorify the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. One day, Jesus is Lord. Can I get an amen to that? But Ruth doesn't play it safe. It's, it's funny, um, in, in regards to playing it safe, I took my boys to a restaurant yesterday, and uh, there was an aquarium. How many of you like aquariums? Okay, a few of you like aquariums. And so there's a lot of Nemo fish. Is it Nemo? Yeah, the little orange, orange and white. Uh, uh, and then there's a little dory fish, right? They're all floating around. And it, honestly, I remember I, we were mesmerized. It was a beautiful aquarium tank. Uh, it was like fish nirvana, fish utopia. I mean, the, the colors were dazzling. There's coral all over the place. And it just felt like the fish were really happy. No, I'm serious. It felt like they were really we're really happy. And I remember I remarked, I mean, I said that, Wesley, do the fish look really happy? He's like, yes, Dad, they look really happy, right? I mean, they're swimming really fast, and they just seemed excited. Food was dropping in, and I'm sure the pH balance was absolutely perfect. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, they're living in such, it's called equilibrium, right? It's balance. It's, it's safe. It's, it's comfortable. There's no predators. Could you imagine if you threw in a predator, right, a little mini be devastating. Nemo, bye-bye, right? <laughs> Nemo, fish scales all over the place. Anyways, <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's, okay, let's move on. I lost all of you. Um, but it's, 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 a, it's a safe place. Well, I remember about 10 years ago, I was studying a little bit. It's kind of an old um, theory, but it's called living, living systems theory. And uh, the theory goes that uh, equilibrium in, a, in an environment, in an artificial environment, leads always to death. In other words, if there are no predators, uh, if there's no like challenges uh, in any given environment, that living system or that organism will eventually die. This is why fish in the open water, right, are stronger than fish in aquarium tank. Because fish in the open water, they have, in, in order to survive, they have to develop the requisite strength to get away from the predator. So fish in the water because of challenges 
and because of predators and because there is no equilibrium are actually stronger. Isn't it funny? I don't know this. If you have fish at home, you're a little bit weird, but let's just move on, okay? Uh, but you probably know this, that if, if, if a little slightest change in that artificial environment we call an, um, um, an aquarium, any slightest change will actually cause your fish just, it, it will freak out, right? pH balance is wrong. You don't give them their food. Something happens. They don't have the requisite strength to handle anything that changes, and they're the weaker for it. It's funny. I think um, when it comes to playing it safe, the reason why maybe sometimes God allows certain things, difficulties, suffering, pain in our life, it's not because God is pitiless. It's not because God wants to um, annihilate you or uh, pulverize your life. The reason why God allows, allows certain things to happen doesn't take us around. How many of you wish that God could take us around certain things? A lot of times he does, but there are some times he'll take us through. Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So God, man, I wish God was always take me around this difficulty, but sometimes God will take us through. Why? Because it grows us into human flourishing. It grows us into his love. I have a personal trainer. His name is Marshall. He's a freak of an athlete. It would be weird if I went to uh, the training place, the gym, Training place, what's wrong with me? I've been training a lot. Anyways, Lord have mercy. The gym, uh, and he just sat there, and he just kind of fed me some, some food, and he said, oh, we're just not gonna, we're not gonna work out today. In order to, to get into shape, fitness requires resistance. It requires your muscles being broken down. It's paradoxical. It doesn't make sense, but in order for you to get stronger, you gotta get weaker. And so sometimes God will allow certain things in our environment to grow us into his love, into his grace, into his authority, into his, if you're a Pentecostal, into his anointing. Can I get an amen? Into his blessing so we can be a blessing to the world. You see, if you live in comfort your whole life, if you have no contact with people on the outside, if you don't talk about your problems, if you simply play it safe, you don't want to talk about suffering, you don't want to deal with stuff, you don't want to confess your sin, you don't want to take responsibility for your life, that eventually will take you down the road into death itself. But the good news is, God will never let evil do its worst. God will contain evil. Can I get an amen? In fact, we know in 1 Corinthians 15 that through the achievements of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, that he defeated and swallowed up death and entropy and corruption and radical evil. In principle, evil and suffering and pain has been defeated by Jesus on the cross. Can I get an amen? So if that's true, Chris, why does God allow certain things to happen to good people? Well, because if we create, and I, I guarantee, I know me, I'm not, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I, we watching the Olympics. How many watched the Olympics last night? I love watching people like snowboarders do the crazy things that they do. 
like they take falls and you're like, oh man, that's like, I'm sure that hurts, but you're like, I'm glad I'm here, right? Sitting on the couch watching you hurt yourself. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I, I, I admire snowboarders and extreme athletes. It's, it's exceptional what they do. I'm the kind of guy, I think this is just human nature. I'm the guy, I'll stay home, I'll read a book, I'll get a blanket, I'll get hot tea, coffee, watch Pride and Prejudice, and that's nirvana for me. It's my happy place. Right? That's, that's where I, I love it, right? So I'm not saying let's just go risk and let's not play it safe and let's do stupid stuff for the sake of doing stupid stuff. That's not what I'm saying. I think God, though, allows certain things to happen, even though he's defeated and eventually will destroy evil itself in the new heavens and the new earth. He will allow you to go through things so you can learn to love like him, be holy like him, serve like him. And I think we see this going on in the book of Ruth. Ruth has been caught up by this magnificent vision of who God is. Let me just say this on a personal note. Some of you know this, some of you don't. I, I was diagnosed at the age of 17 um, with uh, type one diabetes. And I remember it was devastating for me. I remember I went to the doctor um, and I was a good kid, grew up um, in a pastor's home. I honestly didn't do a lot of horrible stuff. I, I went to Sunday school and uh, drank a lot of Diet Pepsi. I don't know why that's relevant, but uh, I just, I, I was a good kid, um, memorized scripture, uh, was nice to my sisters. My sisters had problems, but you know. Uh, <laughs> and then I remember I was running track and I just started feeling weird. I'm like, I just feel weird. And so I went to the doctor and I remember my doctor walking in. I had, I had my future in front of me. I was gonna play college basketball. I was gonna do this, this, and this going to move to the East Coast and be involved in politics. There's no way I was ever going to be involved in ministry. Mom, Dad, you can do your thing, but I'm out of here, right? Typical kind of 17-year-old kid. And I remember walking into the office and the doctor coming to me, and he's a close personal friend of ours. He goes, Chris, I'm so sorry, but it's got to tell you that you're, um, you're a diabetic. I was blown away. But it was interesting. That crisis woke me up out of my complacency. And let me say this real quick. I don't believe God gave me that. I don't believe, in, I don't think God, I know that God did not give me type 1 diabetes. I don't claim it. Can I get an amen? I believe in God's healing every single day. I believe that by his stripes, the stripes of Jesus on the cross, I am whole. Can I get an amen to that? I believe my life is inextricably bound up in the life of Jesus. And Jesus, if you don't know, is a pretty healthy guy. So I, I fight, I fight for healing every single day. So then why would God allow this to happen to you, Chris? Well, all I can say is it woke me up out of my complacency. I don't have a metaphysical answer for you. I can't break it down. I don't know why. I had some other, actually one, and I've shared this before, one friend came up to me and says, I think, God, you did something wrong, and so God inflicted you with this sickness. And I remember, oh my gosh, I have, most of my friends are heathens. Why didn't God inflict them, right? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm literally, and I'm not trying to compare myself, but I'm more righteous than most of my friends, and yet I get diabetes, and so I remember wrestling with that, but it honestly, it made me more alive. 
it, it forced me to draw closer to Jesus. And if people come up to me all the time and say, Chris, how did you know that uh, you were going to go into the ministry? How did, you, how, did you, how did you get to the place where you're at right now? And honestly, I can say it, and there's a little bit of a paradox, is that my spiritual renaissance in life happened when I was told 19, 20 years ago, Chris, you're a type 1 diabetic. My whole world was turned upside down. But it's in that crisis by which it drove me closer to Jesus. And I am today what I am because of what I went through. So I think what we need to do, we need to reconceptualize pain and suffering. We're not going to accept it. Can I get an amen? We don't believe God afflicts us. Can I get an amen? We believe that God is healing our bodies even as I speak right now. Can I get an amen? But do some things happen? Yes, they do. And it's not just because you didn't have enough faith. I had a ton of faith that God was going to heal me at 17. A ton of faith, and it didn't happen. Am I healed in Christ? Yes. Am I working that out? Yes. But God used it to form his love in my life. Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. I got this revelation from my wife, but this is verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Verse 2. And so, you're mine. We're his. Can I get an amen? You belong to Jesus. But that doesn't um, keep you uh, from or safe from difficult things. Verse 2 says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through, everyone say through. When you go through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through, everyone say through. Not around, but when you go through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Verse 3, why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I will not leave you, I will not forsake you, I will not abandon you, I will not leave you bereft. Can I get an amen to that? So God uses difficulty to grow us into his love. Because you play it safe, that leads to death. I really do believe that it's um, at the edges of chaos. When you start making a decision to risk for God, be faithful, obedient to him. When you step out of your comfort, that is where you come alive. That is where you find what God has called you to be. Can I get an amen? So Ruth does not play it safe. God will allow certain things to happen um, to grow us in his love and to draw us closer to him. But I love this. Some of you, you still don't believe me. You're like, man, loving people, that's what this message is about? Yes. Chris, it's not sexy. Tell me how, you, how I can manufacture like one million followers on Twitter or Instagram. Tell me, give me 17 steps on how to be a successful businessman. Come on. Give me steps that I can be something. If you want to be great, if you want to be the best, if you truly want to be human, be the best at loving someone.
And that leads to Ruth chapter 4, 14 through 17, as I close. It says, then the, wo- the women said to Naomi, and we're going to talk through this story, so don't worry if, if you're not familiar with this story, but this is, this is the result of Ruth's decision, one simple decision to immigrate with her mother-in-law. And so the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. We usually think of the redeemer, and I'm gonna talk about this next week, as Boaz, and that is true. But also there's implicit, there's an implicit hidden redeemer. And the storyteller wants to tell us that Ruth is also a redeemer. Has not left you this day without a redeemer. What is, what are, what are the women saying to Naomi? Hey, Ruth, through that simple act of generosity and loyalty to you, has redeemed your life. And then may his name be renowned in Israel. Then we go to verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And finally, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. If if you want sexy, I'm sorry, I don't like that word, but if you want that, I mean, there's nothing better than that. One act of generosity leads to the greatest king in Israel's history. This is where generosity takes you. Generosity without return. Ruth, man, as I mentioned before, she didn't think she had a future, but she was committed to serving her mother-in-law, which led to this kind of public praise. Hey, you've been left with Ruth, and she's better than seven sons. I I, I tried... through all my just training and education, I don't think there's anything in the ancient Near East where you have a book titled after, and there's maybe a few occasions, but it's rare, and it would have been a scandal, titling a book after a woman. Think about this. So that in and of itself is scandalous uh, several thousand years ago. Not only that, this praise says that Ruth is better than seven sons. Women never received inheritance. They were essentially property in this world of patriarchy, right? They were under the absolute control of their husband. And she is in, within this setting, she's praised as being better than seven sons. Uh, the number seven means complete. The praise essentially is saying, Ruth is the perfect family. She's all you needed. She's greater than seven sons, and she's the perfect family. She didn't play it safe. She took a risk. She practiced generosity. She loved just one person. Never underestimate how loving one person can literally rescue the entire world. And now Ruth is known in in perpetuity. Around the globe, every single day, couples are reading her words. It's amazing what God can do, how God can bless you simply being the best in loving someone. Amen.
I want you to bow your heads and Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.